Hello, welcome back to part three of We'd Like a Word with myself, Stephen Colgan, and me, Paul Waters. We did it the other way around that time. That looked through you, didn't it? And we've got Kritika Pandey with us, who is the winner of the worldwide Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Which is pretty damn impressive. It is, and it's not the only prize she's won. I mean, there's a whole page here. There's the Oh, the winner of the 2020 James W. Foley Memorial Award, the 2018 Harvey Swados or Swados Fiction Prize, the 2018 Cara Paravani Memorial Award in Fiction, 2014 Charles, well, I'm bored now. There's just so many awards. You're obviously quite yeah. good at what you do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I, I yeah. try. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Like, imagine, imagine you being... Imagine being the best in Asia, and then that should be it. And then it's like, oh, no, there's something even more than that. I mean, no, I mean, it's not honestly like it's not like the best in Asia or the best. You could have a T-shirt. Best in it's, Asia. it's essentially just like what really worked for the chair, the judges from the submissions that came to them this particular year. And so 5,000 submissions um, and, and yeah. <laughs> One out of 5,000 is still pretty good, though. But this is what the, the judgment said, actually. Uh, the Great India Tea and Snakes is a gut punch of a story, remarkable because in spite of its fraught subject matter, it never neglects the beauty of the world in which the story unfolds. Kritika Pandey infuses the tale with empathy and balance, allowing the characters to inhabit themselves fully, while dragging the narrative to its inevitable end. I don't know if it was an inevitable end. I didn't think it was inevitable, but I disagree. It's a story that asks important questions about identity, prejudice and nationhood, using metaphors with devastating effect, while still brimming with its author's revelry in the possibilities of language. Its charged conclusion is all the more shocking, given that most of it is set at a tea seller's stall, and its energy derives from a few looks between a boy and a girl. Uh, my fellow judges and I loved the story when we first read it, and love it more each time we read it. Congratulations. So did you... So there's, there's a shocking violence that happens. And this is all tied, I guess, to Narendra Modi becoming prime minister and nationalism and Hindutva and more of a religious state. But it was interesting that outsiders come along and provoke a violent confrontation. But then some people who were already familiar with also join in. I find that very shocking that maybe not friends turning on each other, but acquaintances and neighbours of some long standing with not very much provocation, deciding, right, we're going to do a terrible thing. And, I, I, you know, we see it in other places. I'm thinking the Balkans, I guess, and where I'm from in Northern Ireland, I guess, as well. But there it seemed that, well, it did seem very normalised, like you were saying earlier. Did it feel like an, an inevitable conclusion? Because it didn't feel inevitable to me. Because it's more shocking in that it wasn't inevitable, I thought. Yeah, the the entire conclusion didn't feel inevitable to me, but there were parts of how the tragedy developed that that were ine inevitable, I think. And so the 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 daily wage laborers participating in the violence without much provocation, really. I was thinking in terms of like the logic of the mob, like what you know. Once this mob mentality takes over, it's people people lose all reason they they're not able to think clearly and there was a little bit of uh, uh, i kind of set it up a little bit in the in the beginning that the daily wage laborers are amused that the boy goes to school 
you know, and that he can and say these complicated English words, uh, name these flowers, etc. But they went to school too, and now they are shoveling cement and sand. And so there's a little bit of resentment there, but uh, it isn't until these outsiders arrive and they start beating up the boy that uh, some of these men, you know, try and uh, make sense of their current con condition uh, as, as daily wage laborers in, in the light of the fact that, oh, you know, there, there's this boy who's getting this education. And uh, well, I am, a, I'm, I'm a little jealous. I'm a, I'm a little, little resentful. And you know, when you're in a position as the daily wage laborers are, you cannot, you have no access to the people in power. Absolutely no access. You cannot go to government officials and say, my life is miserable. I'm not earning enough money. What am I supposed to do? I can't send my children to school. I don't have enough to eat. No one's really listening to you. And so there's this, um, it's, it's a parallel violence. I think that's what sociolo sociologists like to call it. It's when you have no control over people up there, you try and you, know, you, you take it out uh, with people around you. And so that's a little bit of what happened in, in, in that process. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that was inevitable. I think that I mean, from, from the very beginning, I, I think that the way the story was proceeding, um, even in my head, like I would trick myself into believing that this is going to be a perfect love story. Like this can be, why shouldn't it, it be? You know, and that itself, the, the fact that it's a perfect love story between a Hindu girl and a Muslim boy, that itself is, is a mark of protest. And that's what makes it more tragic because it could, it could work out, maybe. Mm -hmm. And it's also quite interesting that the the father in the story we don't we don't see or hear much of him, but we we learn quite a lot about him by a few little actions, like mm -hmm. the business about making sure that the boy drinks out of a metal cup rather than a um, a ceramic cup, because it's almost as if you know the, the boy would taint the ceramic cup, and the fact that he it's I presume the girl's grown up in quite a restrictive traditional household, and the fact that it's never occurred to her before she doesn't know how the solar system works. And the fact that the earth goes around the sun and things like this. And yet the father is the first person to try and break up the fight. He's the first person to try and rescue the boy. That's, that's wonderful. I love that bit. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, I think that like level of complexity is, uh, it's very important for us to, to, to highlight that level. Of, because it basically most people in most parts of the world are fundamentally good people. They don't want violence. They don't want to hurt people, you know. Uh, but obviously, they get carried away by dominant political narratives. Um, I've seen this in my family. You know, people would vote for tyrants and, and authoritarians, but at the same time, they would, when when something terrible is happening on the street, they would they would try and break up the fight. They they would try and be like, oh, okay, no, just just sort of be peaceful, you know, like my own father, like. He, he voted for Modi. I don't think he's the kind of person who would participate in a, in a mob-related violence. Um, my father is actually a very, very peaceful guy. But uh, he says there's no alternative. This is the only alternative we have right now. And so he has his own reasons for, for voting for this person. But at the same time, I know that he's going to help a person who needs him. It, it doesn't matter if it's a Hindu or a Muslim. So, yeah. I heard... Some Indian friends of mine, they have all sorts of different views. And one of them said something that surprised me, which was about Modi. They said, well, at least we don't have to be ashamed or hide that we're Hindu anymore. And I thought that's a very strange thing because Hindus are the, the majority in the country and I suppose the dominant group. And it was implying that they had somehow been oppressed all this time. 
And I was asking her, when did you have to hide it? Or when was it a shameful thing? And they were never able to point to a time, but somehow they were kind of imagining that they had been oppressed all this time until recent years. And now at last, well, if other people had to suffer, (laughs) at least they didn't have to be ashamed of being Hindu anymore. And I find that quite a strange thing and hard to understand. Does it ring any bells with you? Yeah, no. So this sense of like self-esteem, like being being proud of who you are, being proud of your religion, your identity, your nationality. I feel like a lot of this has to do with um, with the way people think we are perceived in the rest of the world, especially the West. And so I feel like people say, oh, Modi has brought us into conversation, like Donald Trump is shaking hands or hugging Modi, uh, you know, like things like that. It's it's about making a mark in the West or or being able to be proudly, whoever it is that you are, in the eyes of people in the United States or the United Kingdom. It's really essentially about that. But, you know, the, the, the narrative has been twisted into, oh, you know, the reason why we are oppressed by the West is because these Muslims came from somewhere else hundreds of years ago and they took all our money and they, they basically reduced our civilization to a shadow of itself. But you know, there, there has to be a distinction between the, I mean, of course, I mean, at that time, the whole world was in turmoil and, I mean, wars and, and settler colonialism and other kinds of colonialism, they were happening all over the world. But what really happened with the Mughals in India is not colonialism per se. They came here to start living with us. They gave us their food, their culture, their music. They took uh, some of ours. And in 2020, it's impossible to tell uh, so much of these cultural factors apart, like, you know, you eat biryani uh, or you, you say a word, a sentence of Hindi, but there's so much, uh, so many Urdu words uh, in, in the sentence. Most Bollywood songs are replete with Urdu, uh, Urdu words. So, I mean, what India is right now is a richer and a more diverse uh, country because of, uh, of the Mughals. And it's, sort of convenient to twist that narrative into being like, okay, you know, this is the, out, the these are the outsiders, let's attack them. These are, this is the reason why we are, we are where we are right now. But we're all like that at the moment. We've got the same thing going on in the UK with, you know, all oh, get rid of the immigrants. Coronavirus, what that brought into um, sharp focus is the fact that these people are the, are the pillars upon which our society functions. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the immigrants that are manning the NHS. It's the Im- immigrants that are cleaning the offices and cleaning the houses and, and running the care homes, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's very funny that when you start peeling away the layers of what it is to be British, if you were to ask someone to, to sit down and write a list of the 20 things that define Britain, you know, being British like fish and chips or blah, 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 nearly all of them are imported or sadly we went somewhere else and, and stole them and brought them back great britain is a richer more fascinating place yeah. because of the very successive waves of immigration and invasion that have happened over the last 2000 years mm-hmm. and and i just cannot get my head around how people can't see that it, it's 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 distressing and upsetting to someone who's quite liberal i have to say but but the, the staggering thing about your short story, I read it once and I sat back and had a think about it. Then I read it again. And the thing that struck me was how much of this you got into so few words. And that's why you won. That's why you won. 
Yeah, you know, I think the process, like people are like, what's the process of writing this short story? Like, tell us how you wrote it. I feel like you're writing as a writer, you're writing when you're taking a walk, you're writing when you're riding in a train, like you're thinking, you're thinking. And I think a lot of these things that happening in India and other parts of the world have been reading the news, uh, reading academic papers, listening to intellectuals, engaging with uh, activists, or, or just being out there protesting on the streets. And I feel like this whole process of several years finally culminated into me writing this short story, which is why it probably seems like I've packed a lot, but I wasn't necessarily like uh, very conscious about packing all of this. Yeah, just happened. And it's not a didactic political story. It's an interesting, heartrending story, first and foremost. But you got me thinking, there's, this, there's a short story collection coming out in Ireland called The Art of the Glimpse, which is coming out in, in October. Uh, Sinead Gleeson is editing it. And it's got familiar names uh, like Frank O'Connor and Sean O'Feeloy and Edna O'Brien, Irish writers. But it's got uh, lots of new ones as well. And they say new Irish voices. So they've got marginal, marginalised voices like travellers, other minorities, but also new people maybe from other parts of the world or whose parents were from other parts of the world. And they want to make a new canon of Irish short story writing, a, a richer one, the more reflective of the population. Not all white writers and not all men, that sort of thing. Now, is that something you think that Indian publishers are likely to embrace? Non-traditional voices? I mean, you've won this prize that gives you a good platform. I don't know to what extent women are reflected in Indian literature and what gets published. But I suppose people from all sorts of different backgrounds, the Indian equivalent of that. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's happening enough. I, I think we have a lot of work to do on that front because there are many um, writers from the Dalit community, the Adivasi community, and, and generally like working class people who are very good writers, but they don't have that, the social capital as it were, to have access to a particular kind of publisher or an agent. And so they end up not ever making it to the popular imagination. There's a very good story. It's an actual story about Mahashweta Devi, who was this uh, writer from Bengal. And, you know, she was teaching in a university and she was very well known at the time. And so she took a rickshaw from outside her university, which is I don't know how to describe a rickshaw. It's, it's, it's got three wheels and you, you've probably seen it in parts of Southeast Asia as well, but it's very popular in South Asia where it's like one or two people can sit and then it's um, a man who is riding it. It's a bicycle-like thing, but it's, it's a tricycle. Oh, actually. we've got these all around central London now. Yeah. Yeah. And so this man who's riding the rickshaw, he asked her a question. He asked her the meaning of a word, Gigi Bisha, which is actually, it's a Sanskritized Bengali word. And she got really surprised. She was like, how does this rickshaw puller do, know this Sanskrit word? And so she wanted to know how, why is he asking this question? And said, so, you know, with the, in, during the course of the conversation, she discovered that he's actually a very uh, passionate writer and he reads and writes a lot. And so she helped him uh, gain more visibility, get a better publisher. And now he's a very important activist and writer. So I feel like, you know, these these sort of stories that we hear every now and then, they happen, but like unless and until it happens at an institutional level, we are not going to be able to have equality in, in the publishing space. And we have a lot of work to do on that front. We heard a similar story a couple of episodes ago when we had Dougie Brimson on. 
who was talking about working class writers in the UK and how they don't often get the opportunities that obviously people in, in the middle classes and, and, and the money classes get, you know, because they don't have the same, they've got the stories and they've got the, the method of telling them, but what they don't have is the access. And, and a lot of the time, they're having to pull down two or three jobs just to stay alive, you know, and they just don't get the time to promote themselves. Yeah. So it, it seems to be a common story all around the world about working class voices needing an outlet. Yeah, I do want to add a little bit about like women who write. I feel like writing is this process which is riddled with self-doubt. And being a woman means that you're constantly doubting yourself because you've been taught to. So then being a woman who writes becomes that much more of a challenge. And so if you're writing and, you know, you send your work out and an agent or a publisher, they tell you, you know, this is not working. You should edit this out or, you know, gives you a series of comments and feedback and then ask you to get back. It's actually, I feel like it's, it's very seldom that a woman would immediately get back after editing it because, you know, for a long time, she'd be thinking, oh my God, I'm no good. I should have known better why did I even start doing this? You know, but a man is uh, always, almost always, I feel like they get back to you very quickly because they, they feel, you know, there's this sense of entitlement that obviously I'm a good writer. Okay, I need to make these few changes, but then after that, my story is going to be perfect. You know what I mean? And so like I've worked as, a, as an editor of a magazine for a year and I've seen this difference between men and women. I've taught in uh, taught undergraduates in the United States and in India. And I've seen this difference between men and women. Like when you ask a question, even if women, they know the answers, like they don't really raise their hands very quickly or aggressively. But men are like, even if they don't know what they're talking about, they, they know how to be loud. Especially. <laughs> yeah. And they know how to be loud and take all the space. And so that's, that's a real challenge for, for women who write. Could I ask you about something else you mentioned in the story? The girl in the story, she encounters some men who are gathered around a Gandhi monument or Gandhi statue, yeah. and they're laughing, and it's it's a laughter club. So this is something I understand that kind of developed around 1995 in Mumbai, and I'm told it's quite a middle-class thing. I don't know if that's true. And it struck yeah. me that it was, while terrible things were happening, here were some possibly middle-class men laughing, I suppose it's kind of cognitive therapy to make yourself feel better. So they're ignoring the terrible things that are going on and they're having a good old laugh to themselves to make themselves feel better. So nice, ignoring the tragedy in the streets. But what are these laughter clubs? These laughter clubs, I mean, almost every uh, city in India, you'll find these laughter clubs. I do think that it's a, it's a middle class uh, phenomenon and probably upper class people do it as well. But I don't think you'd see some anything like this in villages, in the villages of India. Uh, and so yoga and like laughter therapy or laughter yoga as it's also called has gained this uh, newfound prominence in the early 2000s in India because all of a sudden we were like wait a minute people in the United States are doing all of these different kinds of yoga Bikram yoga and hot yoga and power yoga and you know isn't it our culture like shouldn't we be taking it more seriously and so like that's how a lot of the people around me at least they started being like we need to reappropriate yoga or reclaim yoga and there was this uh, saffron clad man there is is called Ramdev Baba who started coming on tv um, live every morning 
for several hours and started teaching us all yoga. And so this, this is one of the things that he would say very often. I was in high school and he would say, people in America are practicing yoga. You have to do it. I mean, you know, like, that's like, like, wh why is it that people in, like, why people are doing yoga? You've got to do yoga. Like, as if that should be a motivation, but it was, and people started uh, being really passionate about yoga. And I think laughter yoga was one of the, one of the things that came out of that uh, wave. And if you look at uh, people practicing laughter yoga, it's actually, it seems really absurd from like a third person's perspective, like you're driving past or walking, walking by a park and there's a group of people who are like laughing very loudly and they are forcing themselves to laugh clearly. And the louder they laugh, the better they think it is for their bodies. However, when you, when you juxtapose this with the current sociopolitical upheaval in India, it becomes that much more absurd. Like you are deliberately doing this to forget about the things that are happening around you. And it's, it's almost cruel. It's not just absurd. It's actually very cruel. And because uh, it's a popular thing in middle-class people, a lot of the middle-class people in India who practice yoga or practice a laughter yoga do it out of a sense of nationalistic pride. And a majority of them are Hindus. So the girl in the, in the story, she, she can tell that these men are, you know, they are loud and self-assured. They must be Hindus. They, they must be the alu uh, samosa eating types. I love it that you can have nationalist laughter. That's, I've never <laughs> even heard that before. So there's laughing. I'm not going to say when this is in the story, but a man turns to her when it's over. So young lady, are you happy now? She looks at the beads of sweat on his forehead, laughter lines around his mouth. Are you? She asks. I'm wondering. Maybe that's, she's asking the whole of India. Are you happy? Yeah. Is this it? Yeah. Like, are you happy? No, this, this is the stage that we are at. This, the hundreds of people since 2015 have been lynched by mobs. Few of them are also women and not all of them are Muslims. A lot of them are Dalits and also Adivasis. And so this is the stage we are at. I mean, a couple of those people, a few of those people are also Hindus. You know, like when mob, mob mentality takes over, like the, the entire country is in a state of violent frenzy right now. And so there is absolutely nothing to be happy about. And so let's not pretend otherwise. On that thoughtful note, I was going to say that happy note, we're talking about laughter and that must be the most depressing conversation about laughter. It's been lovely having you, Kritika Pandey, winner of the Commonwealth Short Story Prize on Weed Like a Word. And good luck with your novel writing. Where can people find the story? On granta.com. It's an online um, literary magazine and they also they also publish like hard copy versions of, of some of their works. Um, and I generally recommend a lot of the works that they publish. So yeah, Granta. And is it on your own website as well? It's uh, kritikapande.com. It's hyperlinked under the uh, select publications section. Thanks very much for joining okay. us. I've been Paul Waters. And I've been Steve Colgan. <laughs> That's not nationalist laughter for you. No, no, no. That was <laughs> just laughter because so I'm much. happy. I had a really lovely conversation. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word.